Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today we've got a great show in store for you. We've got Greg Staggs on the line to talk all things deer hunting and one sticking. I look up to Greg a ton and I took a bunch of information away from him on this episode. We take a deep dive down a bunch of different topics all the way from ag country tactics to why coyote trapping makes you a better deer hunter. So I think that there's a ton to take away from this episode. One last thing before we get into today's show, if you're looking to pick up any last minute gear before season, head over to latitudeoutdoors.com, pick out what you need. You can save 20% off your order by using the code in session. That's one word in session. You can find that in the description of this podcast as well. Also, if you haven't checked out Latitude Outdoors on YouTube, go check that out. We have a bunch of different web series over there. We have the Incession series. We have the Grit series, which is all the hunts from the team last year. And then they have hunt recaps as well, which are very informative. So I've learned a ton from those videos over there. I think that you guys would enjoy them. Thank you once again for listening to today's show. Let's get right into it. Today, I'm joined by one of my idols, guy I've looked up to for a long time, absolute legend in the deer woods. I'm talking about none other than Mr. Greg Staggs. Greg, thanks for hopping on the show today, man. Well, man, my pleasure. And I would, uh, that's a uh, way too nice of an intro. I mean, uh, I see what I remember. I ran across you. I didn't even know who you were, Jake, a couple of years ago. And I don't know if you remember this or not. Your video of where you shot the buck with your right after your father passed, right? That came up as a suggestion in my YouTube feed. I'd never heard of you. I clicked on it just by chance and that mesmerized because I had lost my father six months prior. And man, that video just took me to my core. And I, I made a I made a response. You responded on it. I made a reply on the video, a comment about it. But yeah, ever since then, man, I've just like linked arms with you and, and followed you as well. And absolutely, it's a reciprocal feeling. I can tell you that. I really appreciate it, man. And yeah, uh, you know, sorry for your loss. It's it's a difficult thing, man. But you know what? There's there's ways that we find peace within that. And like for me, I've got my first hunt coming up in nine days now. And already I just feel dad and papa, you know, my grandpa, I call papa, but I feel dad and papa like getting closer. Like at this time of year, I always feel that leading into the opener. And it just, it means so much to me. Like that first sit, you know, a lot of people are probably like, oh, you know, you should have more fun with it or be like, be less hardcore or all these things. But what it really is to my core is like, I just, it's so much more than hunting or killing to me because it brings me closer to God. It brings me closer to my family. It brings me closer to my loved ones that I've lost. And it just hunting overall is it's man, it's just such a great thing for my life. So like, I really appreciated when you uh, commented on that video. And I remember just taking that comment to heart and it meant a lot, man. So I always tend to gravitate towards individuals that I, that I find, you know, like we can just sit down and have a conversation. You're just an overall great guy. So I absolutely think that it's going to be an awesome episode today. On top of it, you're a killer. And and you have some unique tactics and you have some unique ways of even utilizing equipment that we're going to dive into today. So I think that this is going to be a great episode. It's going to be very time relative to, you know, I'm 10 days out. How far out of season are you right now? So Missouri opens September 15th. And, and we've got a few patches of woods around that we'll target. And we always try to throw a door or two in the freezer as early. We're a, we're a little different. This is going to sound weird to a lot of people. I don't target a lot of big bucks early on. And, and we can dive into a lot of reasons for that. But I, mainly it's because we're in ag country. So a lot of your listeners might be at Big Hills. And I, I love watching some of the videos where you break down thermal hubs and beds. I'm trying to learn that. But we're predominantly ag country around here. And meaning it's a lot of corn and soybeans. And the soybeans are just on the edge of turning. So you got you got two stipulations or two two factors going into this. One is the the soybeans are about to turn yellow, and as soon as they turn yellow, the the deer will get off of them. I mean, you know, you'll find patches where the shade extends out over the field, and those beans will turn. They'll stay greener longer, and and that, that almost provides a little honey hole that you can get on. Uh, so that coincides, or the second factor is the deer losing their velvet, and then they're about to change their behavior patterns right there. So those two things. It's really hard for us to scout hard and, and lay down a pattern for a kind of a summer buck because it's about to completely change. And then you couple that with the fact that I'm almost just as proud of the fact that we haven't had to buy red meat from a grocery store in 23 years. A lot of people have done it probably. We were just singled out. We were picked to be on uh, America Now with John Stossel and Leslie Gibbons. It's some big national show because they found it amazing that a human being can live in America and not have to go to the store to buy meat. I'm like, it's not that big a deal, guys. But but I am proud of that fat, that streak. So so we probably got less than a a deer left in our freezer right now. And, and we strive to put five, six, seven, you know, we put as many as eight in a year. And people are like, God, that's a lot of deer. Well, we took a lot of, I mean, we're carnivores. I mean, we, 
we eat a lot. We invite friends over for barbecues and grills and you know stuff like that. So we're probably down to less less than a deer. So uh, my first goal is to to restock the freezer. So I'm going to go out and put a dough or two down really quick, real easy. And I think that lends itself too to you know I've killed a lot of deer of my career, a lot, and the vast majority of them are does, right? I mean I've killed probably seventy percent of the triple digit numbers of, of big game animals I've killed have been does. You know it gets you in that kill mode, man. And, and when that buck steps out, I literally, you know, maybe one day it'll happen. But I mean, I've had 170 plus deer in front of me and I just, it's ice in the veins. I just go to kill mode and I don't even shake nothing. Now, afterwards, I made a little bit, but you know, it's just, you know, just kill mode. And so that's the focus of our first part of the season, September 15th for Missouri. Even the first week of October, we'll jump over to start, start hunting primarily more in Illinois. I live right on the Mississippi River, so I bounce back and forth quite a bit. And Illinois, by October, I mean, literally, there will not be a velvet buck left uh, in the Midwest and here. And so, and really rarely in Missouri as well. So yeah, that's, that's where we're at, man. There's already a bunch of good takeaways there. I think that having the ability to go out and target some does before you target a buck is such a great idea. And that's something like, you know, if somebody's looking more towards the late October slash early November timeframe to get on a deer, like if they have historical data where deer is going to show up in that time frame and they're, you know, sitting around twiddling their thumbs trying to figure out what to do. I think one of the best things that you can do to put yourself in good position on a big deer is go kill some does and just, you know, you got to get back in that uh, muscle memory state. It's so overlooked, like going in cold on a like, let's say I find a 170 this year, right? And I'm going to go in cold open a day and try to kill that deer. Well, man, the muscle memory is not very good. I didn't kill last year. So I've got, I've got to go back two years for that muscle memory. And that's a big deal. So if I could, you know, whether it's like I look at uh, Kentucky this year, I'll be in Kentucky and that's a lot smaller deer, but my goal is to go down there and just fill a tag. I want to go to Kentucky and fill a tag because I'm getting back in the groove. Like I don't like having big gaps between when I kill deer. So for me, it's like, okay, go down there, fill a tag, come back to Ohio. You already have it figured out. Like you're ready to rock and roll and then get serious and go try to figure out how to kill that big buck you're after. So, so that's huge, man. And then the other side of it too, which is something we don't talk about a lot. I'm, I'm working towards that self-sustainability myself with food. We eat very well in my house. We're just, it's very important to me that we're eating high quality food. Um, it, like we're going to start a big garden. We want to eat as much venison as possible. I want to eat the minimum amount of red meat from the store I can. And I just want to try to work towards that self-sustainability. So, you know, if we can, between Hannah and I kill, like, let's see what we can kill five or six deer. That's going to last us the majority of the year. You know, we, between that and walleye, like we catch a ton of walleye. So between that and the fish, we're pretty much ready to rock and roll as long as we can figure that out. And then we need to do, get some chicken or something in between that. Oh, I've been talking about it right now. I mean, I've kind of, if that ROI is, you know, is like, man, is it worth it? But I, I think it will be. I do too, man, for sure. So, so hey, let's let's jump into your ag country tactics, if you will. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't hunt a ton of ag, but I will be in some states this year that have more ag and I'll be a little bit more focused on it. So I'd like to just pick your brain as much as possible. Try to figure out like, you know, I've got quite a few bean fields around the area that I'm hunting right now and those deer are in those bean fields. So I'm watching those bucks in those bean fields right now. I've got a September 30th opener in Ohio. So what should I be focused on to try to relocate those deer? Yeah. So, uh, so a couple things there is obviously if you can find the shorter bean fields versus the taller, they're going to stay greener longer, right? We're not looking for a specific buck when we drive around in glass with, with binos. We're more looking for concentrations of deer. And if we can find a big monster or two out in the bean field, well, obviously we're marking a pin, dropping a waypoint and, and trying to figure out where the closest uh, public land to that is because we'll knock on a door too. We, we did knock on a door about two weeks ago. We, my son found a legit booner out in the greenfield. And of course he said, well, he goes, you know, I appreciate you you guys asking, but I get a lot of money for, you know, leasing and stuff. And I get it. But he was 300 yards away from public land. So we, we hiked up a huge mountain and came up the back end of it. We've got three cameras out there now. We don't typically run a lot of cameras over my career, but we're starting to a little bit more. We've got a couple of nice bucks on it right there, but anyway, we're going to come in the back way, but so we focus on, you know, just locating numbers. And so because we our philosophy, as you probably know, is we bounce quite a bit. I mean, I won't work an area intensively. I, I believe in first time is your best time in that kind of philosophy. I don't like seeing the same tree twice. We will bounce, 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 bounce. And, and so if I can locate six, seven, eight, nine different deer around fields and everything, they're not going to go really super far. So I'm looking for short, shorter beans. I'm looking for really shaded areas of that bean field in the back corner. 
or back because those beans will stay green longer in season so you can get there and then it won't be long after that the, the farmers are going to get go in and cut the bean the corn rather and that's where my strategy really starts taking over i mean it, to me i said it a, a years ago corn is king i mean obviously the bean the deer are going to be hitting the beans early but corn is king in my world and if i can find a cornfield especially an isolated cornfield if i look around drive around and there's you know it's the only cornfield in a three-mile radius, that's where I'm going to focus around that cornfield. Man, you just let the cat out of the bag there, Greg, because <laughs> that that's a huge thing. I mean, I've got a lot of bean fields around here, but this was the same thing in New York when I lived up there as well. If I can find a cornfield, like an isolated cornfield, where it's the only one within a couple miles and it borders public, that spot is going to have some, it's going to have a lot of deer and probably some of the better deer in the area. They just, they know to navigate to that spot. You know, they're feeding in the beans. Like my perfect scenario, this is if I have a public behind some private ag and that private ag is like mostly bean fields, but there's like one cornfield there. Well, okay. All those bean fields are where the deer are right now, but I go in and I scout behind the cornfield, like say that there's multiple hubs. Well, the hub behind the cornfield is the one that I'm most focused on. And then as those bean fields get cut, those deer all of a sudden shift. It might be up to a mile, you know, they'll shift, but man, I've already got cameras waiting on that cornfield. And it's like, it's the ultimate play, in my opinion. I just have a lot of success doing that. I think two out of the last four have been on those cornfields that bordered private like that. So I think that there's a lot to be taken away from that. So with your cameras that you were putting up in the hills behind some of those fields, are you focused on anything in particular behind there? Like when you guys were scouting that, what were you looking for? So we found a, a, an oak flat up top, up above there. So so we put two cameras on opposite sides so I wouldn't miss miss any. They're basically almost pointed. They're on one edge, one edge, almost pointed at each other. And then I we dropped down in sort of a kind of a valley draw area that, that had a trail going out into the bean field toward that farmer's land. And we found a really nice trail coming out of it, out of the bean field, up through the draw, and then before it went up, kind of side healed up over over the ledge there. And so I'll put a camera on that one, and I, that's the one I'm going to get some nice bucks on. And we got, a, we got some smaller ones on the oak flat, but they're not really hitting it. They weren't yet as well, but that, that main travel corridor has got some. Are you seeing uh, acorns on the ground already this year? A few, and I noticed that you've, uh, you've made some posts on your, your Instagram feed as well. I'm more, though, I won't focus on food in the woods. But I'm more of a, because... All the ag country we have, of course, again, those are that's a different scenario. That's the the hill country, and we really haven't started focusing on that. I'm I'll be back in my favorite, in my you know my comfort zone. I'll be back in the ags, and and there's not a ton of oats dropping in that. I mean, a lot a lot of what I hunt is very reminiscent of what I grew up. You know, I didn't get into deer hunting until I was in college, the latter part of my college career. My dad introduced me to the outdoors through two methods: frogging, you know, going down and then getting frogs from you know with a gig and and we'd shoot them when they're floating in the middle of the ditch on moss pads, and then rabbit hunting. We always, we always had a couple of beagles. And so a lot of the places I deer hunt today are very reminiscent of where we would have rabbit hunted at. I mean, if you can find a tree or two to get up in, you know, and hang in a saddle or something, I mean, that's, you're, you're doing good. I mean, there will be pockets here and there and everything. Yeah, there there's not a ton of acorns where, where we're predominantly going at. It's more of bed to feed, bed to feed. And the feed being the ag, right? I'm not looking for that as much. I'm looking more for travel corridors. I'll tell you, I, I was thinking about, you know, I knew this podcast obviously was coming up, and I was thinking about what would be one secret I could tell your listeners that they probably haven't thought of or made, because my mindset, anytime I go to hear a speech or, or I listen to something or whatever, if I can get one nugget out of it, it was success, right? And uh, I mean, because you listen to 10 of them, you get 10 nuggets. How much further ahead of you are, are you than the competition? And so I was thinking about one thing that, I haven't heard, it's not regurgitated, I don't know anybody else is doing this, but the ag country I hunt is very little terrain change, very little elevation change. So if you pull it up on Onyx or Hunt Stand or Base Maps, Spartan Forge, whatever after you're using, you're, you're not going to see a lot of elevation lines where I hunt at all. And so it's really boots on the ground. And to be honest with you, when you're going through this thick stuff, it's sometimes you're crawling through on all fours. And I'm not making that up. I mean, I will do that to get from one section to another at times. That's where I'll find my sheds at. It's just really tough to navigate. It's almost hard to discern elevation changes when you're there in it, right? Because, I mean, you're talking a couple feet elevation change at most sometimes. So what I've learned to do over the last several years is we will get just some monstrous monsoon storms come through at times. Just deluges of rain where, I mean, it'll rain six, seven, eight inches in a day. And it might do that for a week at a time. And it flood out some of these small towns and they make the news because it's 
kind of boring on disastrous or everything. That's the time I'll go to some of my hunting areas or a special hunting area that I haven't been to and want to check out a new new hunting area. And sometimes it's tough to get to because of all the rain, the roads are muddy and everything. But if I can get there and then start walking at that point, that's when all the flooding in the area exposes those one or two foot elevation changes. And I can walk those spots because those will be the only spots above water. And it doesn't seem like a big deal there, but when the water goes back down and it's November or whatever, that's where you'll find a lot of the trails going and it's just subtle elevation change. The deer recognize it and you'll find trails going up and down it. And I will, well, I'll start dropping pins like crazy on those elevation changes then. Man, you just, I just had this light bulb go off. This is, I mean, this is awesome because my hometown uh, back in New York has some swampy public in it and it's very small pieces but there's always guys just dragging some big giant bucks out of there and it's it's randomly but like at a certain time of the year a big buck will fall in there and i went and scouted it one time and this it's like right next to an old dredge system where they dredged out i don't know what they used it for but like in the middle of the swamp they basically dredged out and created like this uh, man-made river and that thing floods and when it floods it's just all underwater and so i would say that like 50 percent of the year that whole area is underwater and i went in to scout it one time i threw waders on and i didn't even i covered 10 percent of the property and I wrote it off because of the water. I was like, I'm not dealing with this. Like, this doesn't make any sense. This is all, it's all going to be water. But what I didn't, if I would have spoken to you before then, before a couple of years ago, what I would have did is went around and just grid searched that whole section and found the high spot. Because there's a high spot out there and those deer know that they're surviving in that water on a high spot somewhere. I guarantee it. So now where my head's at is I'm like, man, I know that with the, uh, the thaw, because we get a lot of snow in New York, you know, I live just east of Buffalo. So we get absolutely hammered with snow. And when we get that spring thaw, this area floods really bad. And same thing with these big rainstorms. But I need to go in there and put the waders on and go find those high spots because I guarantee you that those deer are living on those high spots the majority of the year and everybody just writes it off. I mean, that's that's huge, man. That relates to a lot of different areas. Like I spent some time in Indiana in some flooded areas this year and I just wrote them off. I've been really guilty of writing areas off due to flooding because I just, I'm like, there's no way, but I've probably overlooked some killer areas that other guys are all are also overlooking that probably produce some good bucks because I'm not figuring out what you have already figured out. Well, so so a couple things. One is when the water's in there, I don't deer don't mind moving through water. You know, if, if someone's misinterpreting that, that as a listener, I don't want to want them to confuse that. Deer obviously, I mean, she, we see deer swim in the Mississippi when we're out catfishing in our big catfish boat, right? I mean, they don't move and they'll they'll just travel back and forth in, in submerged areas. And I've actually watched those come by and just literally back them up, floating acorns off the top of the water. I mean, they don't mind that, but I do think they mind bedding in it. And, and that's a difference, right? And so obviously when we're trying to move in on a bigger deer, he's probably not moving really far in the daylight hours anyway. So we're trying to look for those beds. I mean, obviously that's where, where we're going. Uh, and then secondly, you know, a lot of these areas I hunt don't stay submerged, but that era or that period of time reveals the high spots to me, just to clarify. Yeah. And that's, that's where I'm at. So, at, you know, come season, this area, the water does come way down. But I just have never been able to scout it because of the way that it's set up. It was flooded at the time. But, you know, I can even think of like in season, if it floods, that's got to just pinch these deer into little pockets, right? Like if you can figure out a way to get in there, it's got to be killer, man. Yeah, I've got a guy that I used to follow years and years and years ago when, when the, I mean, I'm not kidding, when the internet was first created, we all started jumping on some of these bow hunting boards and stuff and forums and and learning from each other and he called it negative space that you know there's a lot of negative space in the deer woods that deer aren't going to traverse through and, and utilize and, and navigate through and and it does it, it reveals a lot of the negative space and and that stuff that gets flooded all the time a lot of times it kills the vegetation out and you know it's you can just it, it really starts isolating okay here's the areas i need to focus on so the other thing you mentioned was finding these treeless areas or areas where it's like a couple trees that is almost more conducive to rabbit hunting than it is to deer hunting. 
So let's let's take a deep dive down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Pun intended, by the yeah, way. But yeah. let's, let's take a deep dive down this rabbit hole because I've got spots in Ohio. Uh, I've killed in Kansas in a spot like this. And it's something that I've just started to key in on that. And I'm, I'm nowhere, I'm by no means an expert at this at all, by the way, but I've keyed in on these features that are like treeless areas and had a lot of success running cameras and then killing a couple deer in these sections. So let's just take a deep dive down into it. You know, I think that one of the things that does right off the bat is it eliminates a lot of hunting pressure. Like a lot of hunters are looking at these spots, specifically like a if you live in a state that is in like a destination state for whitetail hunters, like a Kansas, right? Like when I went out to Kansas, well, everybody in the st- that's visiting Kansas is like, well, I want to hunt the river bottoms. I want to hunt these big wooded draws that the deer are going to be running along the river. And so you go in there and man, it's like ladder stand, ladder stand, climber. Like it's like, I saw six guys with decoys in one day in my first day there. And I was like, this is just crazy. These guys are all over the place. But so my mindset, what I did is I went back to my maps and I looked at every, everything that basically I had written off because there was no trees. And I got into a spot that had very limited trees. It was like these, uh, basically just like scrub cedars almost. And I ended up getting up in one of those dead trees and killed my deer at seven yards two hours later. So let's just take a deep dive down your thought process with these trueless areas. Yeah. So let me start off with an example. So it was either, I think it's three years ago. So my son and I were in an area like this and there was some just nasty bit area area, uh, between us and the ag field that was behind us. And we were about 85, 90 yards off the, the ag edge. And, and I couldn't push much deeper. I was just going to start blowing deer out of their, their beds. And that's an, that's another reason why we could circle back later. Uh, that's another reason why we don't push in and just blow through areas right off the, because deer will just bed. I mean, they, they bed and get up and walk 20 yards and eat, right? And so you got to be very careful and cautious going into some of these ag areas when you're going to blow them out if you're trying to hunt them the same day you're going in, right? So my son and I, we knew this area. We'd been in it several times. And so he was actually hanging up closer to the edge that he had a shot to the field edge. And I had pushed back in where I had a shot. Basically, if anything stood up out of the bedding area, I mean, I was that close. So we were kind of, you know, leapfrogged back in there. This was January three years ago. It was like January 12th or something. There were only a few days left of the season. And it was bitterly cold. And my son, you got to remember this, three years ago, he was 13. And so now he's 16. And it was bitterly, I mean, it was in the single digits. I remember getting a text from my son. It was about 15, 20 minutes before shooting light ended. So uh, even before sunset. And it was just so cold. He goes, I'm getting down, Dad. And I'm like, fine, you know, go ahead. I mean, I under, I get it. I mean, we hadn't seen much deer activity or anything. I could see him back in the corner of my eye through the trees. I couldn't see hardly at all in front of me because it was so thick. I could see him on the field edge back behind me. And I watched him, on, you know, we repel. I see him repel down like that. And about that time, I watched this. I, I pick out antlers coming coming through. And was, you know, they were kind of moving. And all of a sudden, they just stopped. He saw him rappel down too. And I was in a tree, I'm not kidding you, Jake, that my quick link, if you're familiar with a pencil quick link that most of us use to rappel with, it's probably two and a half inches long, three inches most. And the tree, my quick link was wider than the tree where I was at. And I was only probably 15 foot up. That's what kind of a tree I was in. And I watched that buck stop and watch my son pack up and everything. And then he veered and started coming down a trail and I, I mean, I was going to be exposed. I was in that small of a tree. I had to come to full draw about eight yards before he rounded a corner. And he, he came around the corner. He just stopped. I was, you know, I'm a 200-pound guy. I looked like a lollipop up there in a tree about five inches around. But it was too late for him. I drilled him. And he wasn't a monster. But, uh, you know, he was a nice buck for January and uh, after a long season. And, and you know, it, that's very reminiscent of some of these areas that I had that, I think that your point was a lot. You see it on the boards, a lot of the forums and Facebook groups and things like that is people are like, what's the small tree you can get up to? And if it won't bend over in my weight, I'm, I can get in it and I'll hunt out of it. No, no question. Oh, I completely agree. I look at, you know, I've been in some nasty trees over the years, like some that are so terrifying that I'll only get like six feet off the ground. Like they're just, you don't need much. You don't need much. My biggest deer is 167, clean 12, six by six. I was seven foot off the ground. Yeah, man. And there's something to be said about that. That's another great topic because there's so much talk about like cover in the tree all the time, right? Like I always hear it. Like people are like, hey, how high do you get? And what's the, what's the height you want to be at? My approach has never been that way. And I think it has a lot to do with the success I had from the ground as a kid. Like I just, before I had a stand, 
you know, dad had his ladder stand and Papa had his hang on. And before I had a climber, I just ground hunted. Like I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. I was out there chasing deer, man. But what that taught me is like, is, is the true importance of cover and cover is different than what I think a lot of people think it is in my opinion anyways, where a lot of people are looking like in, in tree cover. Like they want to pick a tree that has a bunch of limbs with leaves and all sorts of stuff going on. For me, I don't really care about the cover in the tree that I'm in. I care about the cover in between me and the deer. So if it's a bush, it could be a greenbrier patch on the ground. I could be in a toothpick of a, a or a telephone pole and wide open. But as long as I'm drawn back and can shoot him when he can see me, that's all I care about. And it sounds like that was your example. Like you're well, not, yeah. you have he, zero cover. He came around the corner. He was already dead before he came around the corner. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times it is, it's so fine tuned that it is almost like it, the, the moment that they see you, you have to shoot them because if you wait another split second, like they got you a lot of deer that I've killed. It's either by scent or by sight. They, they detect me in one way, shape or form. And the arrow is going through them simultaneously, like head up, you know, they pick their head up and they're getting shot. And I think that that's just so important that when you're looking at a lot of these setups, especially when you get in these treeless areas, like you don't necessarily need to rely on the cover of the tree. You just need to rely on the cover of your surroundings more than anything else. And I think there's an important lesson there that you just mentioned. Some of it obviously is for video effects, right? And and I get that part with YouTube and TV and cameras and cell filming and all that. But I watch so many hunters that let good opportunities go. And whether they would do that normally in real life without, you know, the whole self-filming thing and all that, I don't know. But, man, I, you know, it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the podcast about just killing, killing, killing all the time and just having that, you know, just a death row mentality at some point. I mean, like, man, the first good opportunity, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm drilling it. And I, I watch some of these things on TV. I'm like, I should have shot there, should have shot there. Shot. And then all of a sudden the, the deer's gone. It turns and walks dead away or whatever, right? It finally ends up picking them off. I'm like, oh my God, you missed so many good opportunities to shoot that deer. You know, I get, I get the self-filming thing and, and all that, but man, it's when, when I'm out in the woods, I mean, it's like, there's times that, yeah, it's, it's picking me off, but, but I'm already draw. I'm already there and I shoot the first opportunity I get. That's a good one. That's such a great point. And, you know, I took my brother out the last couple of years. We've been hunting hard to get him a buck. Like I wanted to get dad a buck. I never got dad a big Ohio buck. So I'm getting my brother a buck. Like it's very important to me. Uh, last year we had four opportunities. And honestly, I could have made a couple of those shots. Like I've told my brother this too. I was in the stand with him filming him. But I think one thing that especially newer hunters, like they watch, uh, you know, the hunting shows on TV and they see these big bucks like walking through all these shooting lanes and then they're getting all this footage, right? They're capturing footage and then all of a sudden, bam, they kill it. Well, that's not my mentality at all. I'm, I'm a lot like you were. I always I always say killer's going to kill. Like the killer's going to kill. And the first opportunity that you get on a mature buck, in my opinion, you need to take that opportunity. If it's, I'm not saying go shoot him, you know, in the spine or in the neck or something right, like, or, right. you know, but. Yeah, we're not advocating bad shots. No, so. but the first opportunity at an ethical shot that you have, in my opinion, I take immediately. And, uh, you know, I get a lot of flack from my videos. I shoot almost all of my deer quartering two with a fixed two blade iron wheel with a 580 grain arrow at 72 pound draw at 12 yards. Like I've killed my last three deer were all sub 18 and two of them were quartering two and it blew right through the top of the scapula through both lungs and then exited and they all like they expire very quickly. So I just think that you just have to become confident in your shot. But like what I told my brother, he's waiting for this perfect shot opportunity a lot of times. And we got busted twice because of him waiting for that opportunity. And I'm in his ear like, shoot, shoot, shoot. And he's not shooting. And I'm like, why is he not shooting? And But that's fine because he is in control of the situation. And if he doesn't feel confident in the shot, he shouldn't take it. But that also comes back to killing does because the more deer that you kill with your equipment, the more confident you become, you know, like I killed my first deer with a bow, man, I don't know, like 15 or 16 years ago now. And so it's just, you know, it's second nature at this point where like I've just filled tags for so long that I just, I feel so confident taking those shots. And so for a newer hunter, he probably looks at that and he's like, well, it wasn't quartering to, or quartering away. You know, I, it wasn't the perfect quartering away or perfect broadside shot. And I'm like, yeah, but George, those are, those are very, very difficult to come by in the deer woods, especially if you're out on public where you can't cut lanes because like you, he stops at the perfect spot and now there's a stick in the way. You know, we don't have these big fancy manicured 10 yard wide like tr paths. You're normally shooting through like I've even had it to the point where I'm like, OK, I have to my arrow has to clear this stick. 
and then I'm going to land it right in the vitals. But like I like at 20 yards, there's a stick that bucks at 33. I know my arrow is going to be above that stick. So when you're aiming, though, your sight is right on the stick. You're like, man, that doesn't look right. But it's just a practicing those shots and then just becoming confident with it more than anything else. I think that there are a lot of missed opportunities. Like I watch some of those videos and same thing. I'm like, like shoot that deer. And I'm like, shoot it. And then he runs off and I'm like, whoa, holy cow. You had, you had four opportunities to kill that thing, man. Like, yeah, I'd run off too eventually. <laughs> and, and, you know, going back to last thing I'll say on this is, you know, I, a lot of people don't know, uh, I've got a, a video on our YouTube channel called Finding a Booner. Well, two years ago now, I guess, we located a 175-inch deer. Public land uh, was betting 45 yards from a highway. Uh, we chased it, but he had a huge circle. He had a huge range that he would go every three or four days, would come around. And my son actually got a shot at that deer at 17 yards. I guess it was two years ago now because he was 14. He missed him at 17 yards broadside shot right underneath him. And so there's a lot of value. A lot of people, you know, we, we as a, as an industry, we, we promote all these big deer and we talk about big deer and we see big deer and everybody, but you know, I think there's a lot of value, not only shooting does is, you know, don't set your standards so high. My, my son has passed so many two and a half year olds that were 125, you know, on the verge of 130. I'm like, would you start shooting those? Kill them. You know, just to, he walks around downstairs. I look off to my left here. You know, I've got deer after deer after deer. You know, there's a thousand inches of antler, you know, man, you know, very much reminiscent behind you in your studio. And, you know, he's grown up looking at all these big deer and he thinks that's the deer you shoot. I'm like, go in the other room around the corner and see yeah. the ones that are like this big, you know, and, and the, the racks are just laying back here on the shelves in the archer room. You know, I mean, they didn't start off that way. And I think there's a lot of value just, you know, I think you, you should graduate from that. You should, you know, it's your tag as, as the listener, it's your tag. You shoot whatever you bought the tag, right? But I think you should graduate eventually in your hunting career, but don't skip that part. That's, that's the message here. Don't skip that part. You know, my son's wanting to skip that part. And I'm like, no, yeah. shoot, shoot a bunch of deer. That's such a good lesson. And it's, it's difficult, right? Because like everybody sees, you only see the glory on social media and that's where we all communicate on social media. But I mean, man, I've, I've killed, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 bucks under a hundred inches in New York. And I like those memories are more important to me than 90% of the deer I've killed since, to be honest with you. Like, Hey, you're, you're getting food, but you're building like it's memories, man. And like, I don't want to miss out on memories because my standards are too high. That was me last year. I went down that road for the first time in my life that I, I haven't filled the tag because I was like, I'm killing this deer or no deer. And I mean, it just, it's not worth it to me, man. So like, you know, I took my brother out last year and I was like, Hey, any deer that gets you fired up, let's kill. I don't care if it's 60. I could care less what it is. Like, let's just kill a deer. And we ended up killing a, a doe together. He killed a doe. His first uh, bow, like first archery deer was last year. I was so proud, man, that doe, like I was so fired up over that doe. Like I couldn't have been more happy. So the antlers don't matter at all at the end of the day, especially with your, you know, your son or like I see my son growing up. I'm like, I, I don't know how to, how to navigate that yet where I don't want him to have those super high expectations because like I'm a very goal oriented person and I'm probably a little bit too hardcore with just about every aspect of my life where I like like to just be is I don't know I, I like to just work really hard at things and just be the best that I can be on a personal level and so I look at that and that probably isn't the best thing to portray to him immediately and I and maybe it is but maybe it isn't because I don't want him to just have the standards that I have off the bat Hannah my fiance she's been hunting with me too and she had this like she has my standards and I've been trying to break her of it we had some deer come in during muzzleloader and a really nice eight point like 130 inch eight point Greg and I was like I was like Hannah that's your buck right there like great first buck and she looks at him she goes that's not a shooter and I was like Babe, that is, and so I'm in the tree and I'm disappointed in myself, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know, I and know, I'm, I'm with you. And I'm like, I'm like, you know what, this is, this is on me because I need to, like, this is a, this is a moment right now and this needs to happen. And, you know, God bless what happened next, but 153 inch, 11 point walked out and she shot him and dropped him in his tracks. But, <laughs> but typically that's not how that situation's going to go. So it's not, and, and I guess that's why I bring this up because I do feel some responsibility as, you know, I, I hate this term, but as you and I, as people label us influencers and if nothing else, people have watched and learned and, and, and it's, it's a bunch of us, right? That, that you get all these newer people out there that, you know, they, they see what our standards are now, but those weren't our standards back then. And, and we had fun along the way. And, and I guess that's just my message is just have fun along, you know, 
just go have fun. Enjoy the process. Don't don't try to do what, you know, the standards that you and I have now, don't do that. I think that's a great point. And I, I'm trying to check that, to be honest with you, where like in Ohio, I still want to have that one pursuit of just something that really challenges me. And so I think I'll continue that pursuit here. But out of state, like I've got Kentucky coming up and we went and pulled cameras down there. The biggest deer we have on camera is like 120 inches, but they're like four or five year old bucks. And at first I was a little bummed out. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go down there. And the first four-year-old deer, regard, like he could be 80 inches. If he's got a big saggy belly and he's a 200 pound deer, I am shooting that thing uh, like as soon as I can. And I am going to just have an absolute blast. And that's kind of my approach now is I've got my ch- my pursuit here and then just go have fun and make memories out of state. Because that's the most important thing, like holding yourself to, especially when you start paying money for all these tags to like holding yourself to a standard and and then just not a no memory, you're out of your money and everything else because you passed the 130. Well, what's, you know, it's so funny because I just had this conversation on the podcast I recorded two hours ago. Uh, but it, it's such a great conversation where, you know, nobody else cares what deer you kill. Nobody cares. Like it is an internal pursuit. Like everybody gets caught up and I got to post this photo on Instagram and people are going to love me. Like nobody cares at all if you kill a deer or not. They do. Are there certain people in your life that want to see you successful at whatever endeavor you choose? Yes. You, they're going to be by your side either way, whether it's killing a deer or not. It is solely an individual mission and it's for yourself. So whatever gets you fired up, just go make that memory. Yeah, could have said it better. Well, cool. So I want to dive into the next thing here. I know that you are quite the trapper, right? And I just want to... Yeah, we, we love trapping. I want to go down this road because I've talked to a couple guys now that uh, some of them actually started as an outdoorsman by trapping and they're just, their woodsmanship skills, in my opinion, are unrivaled because they just... You're taking sign from a small animal and then like, okay, now I got to go find sign from a 200 pound deer. So this is going to be a little bit easier. So let's, let's dive into how you got started trapping, some of your techniques, if you would, and then how that comes back full circle into the deer woods for you. You know, it, it's funny you bring that up, Jake, because uh, a lot of people don't realize some of the, the big names in the industry and the most successful names in our bow hunting niche, if you will, began their career as, as trappers. Tom Miranda, huge, huge trapper. I mean, a lot of these guys that are very successful bow hunters to this day, and I, I kind of say bow hunters because bow, bow hunters force us to learn the animal more so than, and not disparaging rifle hunters, right? There's some very good rifle hunters that are very good woodsmen in their own right, but but bow hunter seems to really kind of dial it down and force you to become a very good woodsman. And that's what trapping does for a lot of people. I mean, you, you know, you're trying to get an animal that has free reign of hundreds and hundreds of acres at his disposal to step onto something the size of a quarter and direct his path. And so number one is you need to know where he wants to be. That that's a huge help. Trying to force an animal to go where he doesn't want to be is kind of hard uh, when it's a wild animal. So, so you need to learn his, his mannerisms, where he likes to be, his travel routes, what naturally funnels him from one direction to another. Trapping teaches you all that. It teaches you a respect for your quarry, for your animal more so than almost anything. And, and then when you grow up and you become proficient or adept at trapping, that skill set translates really nicely with what some of the things we talked about, about, you know, no one had ever told me about what I've come to term in my own own way. And I've heard a lot of people say it now, and it's probably a very probably a common thing. It's not like I was super smart and developed this concept. It's just no one had told me about it, but this this concept of an edge within an edge when I'm hunting whitetails, right? And it's meaning like when I hunt ag country, there's that hard to find edge of you've got the bean field, the corn field, and then the woods or, or the CRP starts, right? And that, that's obviously a huge edge where the farmer quit, quit plowing his field. And, and But if you go back in there at some point, you will find briars and, and just all kinds of stuff and then all of a sudden it may open up into a clear cut or transition to hardwoods or hardwoods transfer to softwoods and pines and cedars. And there, there's always edges within edges. And those are huge travel funnels, corridors for me that the deer, deer are edge creatures. They're, they're diurnal. They move mostly on the edge of day and night. They also move on the edge of terrain. And, and so I learned all that by just woodsmanship and getting out there putting boots on the ground and, and it came from that background and trapping that, that taught me to to love and respect the animal I'm, I'm going after learn them as much as you know as I can and so yeah it, it's a it's a huge stepping stone from trapping to uh, to the whitetail wood if somebody wanted to like let's say they're a bow hunter they've never trapped right like I've never trapped 
If I wanted to get into that, what type of trapping would be most conducive for just becoming a better woodsman? Counties and bobcats. Uh, I, I love land-based predators. You know, there's a whole different segment of water trapping and beavers and mink and nutria and all that stuff. I, get, I dabble in that very, very little. I, I am uh, recognized by the Missouri Department of Conservation. I'm on several lists as an ADC person, animal damage control. Whenever they'll get a call, I'll come in sometimes and look and see if, it, if I want to remove a beaver for them or something like that. But I, I pretty much stay off. My love is coyotes and bobcats, coyotes, bobcats, and fox. Uh, those those animals will will utilize terrain just to the nth degree. I mean, they're they know where they can they can walk and stay out of sight from 100 yards away. They know where the rabbits live and and how to how to navigate around that. Uh, so those animals and and they're so smart. You know, a county is pretty much almost the smartest animal in the woods. Uh, and so if you get very adept at trapping counties, bobcats can be. I love the the end result. I love watch, walking up on a hissing, spitting, snarling bobcat. They're so awesome. Counties, well, a lot of times it's so funny. As bow hunters or hunters in general, we get scared. Sometimes people, you know, the hair on the back of our neck stands up and we hear counties out in the, you know, we're getting down out of our tree and you hear county pack sound off and they're alerting everybody where they're at. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's scary, right? Dude, when you catch a county in a trap, they, by and large, 85 to 90% of them are scared to death. They cower down, hunker down. They're just waiting for you to dispatch them. Or if conservation goes, see fit, you let them go. Most of us don't let a lot of counties go, but you could. It's a catch and release sport, right? But counties will typically hunker down from you. Uh, bobcats, no. They are literally out to tell you one thing. I will kill you if you get a chance. If you get close enough, I'm going to get you. And it's just a complete different mentality. It's, it's so awesome to, to, to get into. But those those animals, especially counties, uh, counties are, are so smart. They're so adept at utilizing their, their terrain. They use funnels and draws and everything just like whitetails do. So when you're, when you're, let's say you're trapping for a coyote, what type of things are you looking for to set up that trap? Like, how do you know you're in the right spot? Yeah, so uh, you're looking for sign, right? I mean, sign, we've got a saying in the trapping world, set on sign. Uh, we're looking for tracks and scad and droppings and, and all the stuff like that. Very much like you would whitetails, right? You're going in looking for sign and, and, and things like that. So set on sign, I'm looking for sign. But if you're taking it from a geographical standpoint, I, I'm looking for terrain features. And, and you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of in the ag country out in the Midwest. So I'm out here in southeast Missouri, central Missouri, southern Illinois, that that area. And so a lot of edges, almost like I do with whitetails, the, a county will run an edge. If you can find where three or four fields come together and there's like field rows or, or something where, you know, a farmer drives out across there, they'll utilize those. Counties tend to be, you know, a lot people have heard people say that, Deer are lazy, right? They're taking the easiest route through the woods. Now they will they will adhere or or affiliate with an edge, but they're still going to kind of take an easy way through. Counties are kind of the same way. They're going to they're going to they're going to navigate toward an edge, but they're taking it. If, if there's a road across there, they're probably going to take it. But yeah, a lot of edges, a lot of places where where junctures come together at points. If three or four fields meet in a corner. I'm gang setting that area same way that a whitetail woods. It's interesting because like when I rut hunt, I see a lot of coyotes rut hunting terrain features. You know, like I'll pick uh, hogs back above a ridge that's got a clear cut that borders up against it on both sides. And it's like, you've got your edge, you've got your terrain feature. And it's just, it just seems bucky for rut movement. And sure enough, I get up in the stand and a coyote comes by and I'm like, what is going on? So, I mean, there might be, I, I, know, I almost guarantee you there's a lot to that where coyotes are traversing yes. the terrain very similarly to, like, I look at it as like how a mature buck would during the rut specifically when he's trying to go from point A to point B more often. You know what I mean? Right, right. And, and a lot of people, you, you see some people mistakenly, in my opinion, mistakenly say, oh, my hunt's blown because the coyote came through. These deer live in conjunction with these animals all. I mean, I've watched deer feed in a field in front of me with alfalfa or cut corn or something. And, and I've watched coyotes work through this field and, you know, they'll lift up their head and keep tabs on them. But you know, they're not blowing deer out, out of the woods, you know. So so don't let, if you're hearing coyotes go, oh, I'm going to shoot everyone I see. Well, I mean, that's fine. But they're not ruining your hunt. Yeah, I had a camera down in a hub last year, and I actually shot a coyote from the, I was six feet off the ground, and it turned, and it ran right at me for some reason. I shot it right in the chest with my bow. But that spot, those coyotes were, they were laying on a hillside, like on a flat spot on the hillside. And so you can see the coyotes laying, and in the back, like 50 feet away-ish, you can see the scrape that I was focused on. It's just a hillside scrape. 
And I would have those coyotes laying there while bucks hit that scrape. It like they were they were 50 feet apart. It's three coyotes and a mature buck late October hitting a scrape. And on the camera, it didn't look like he cared at all that they were there. It was very, very odd to me, to be honest with you. What's crazy, I've started trying to run cameras over. We're, we're wanting to get into mock scrapes. We, we, we're, we're beginners at it, right? Uh, I mean, I've had a lot of friends. I mean, I've known Troy Pottinger for 20 plus years, right? So I've watched him from afar with his success. And I've just never really got into it a ton yet. But I do run cameras over scrapes. That's how we found the 173 Booner a couple of years ago is I put a camera up high over a scrape and all of a sudden he just appeared. I mean, he looked like a freaking Christmas tree on top of his head. And running those cameras over scrapes, you'll find buck, 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 cowdy, buck, 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 cowdy. Like they're almost attracted to the scrape. I don't know if they just know that's a natural congregation area. It's almost they recognize it as a as a central meeting place as well. Man, that's so interesting. There's definitely there's something to it. And it is so funny though, because like when I'm in the stand and I see a coyote, I'm like, oh, here we go. But you know what? A light bulb just went off. I killed my 186. So I was 20 feet from coyotes walking into the woods that day. And like, I'm watching them and I'm like, should I shoot those coyotes? And I'm like, well, I kind of got a big deer another hundred yards up here. So I let them run off the direction that I was going. Two hours later, I killed a 186 inch buck in that same system. So like, I don't think it matters as much as people think it matters. Maybe you can, you can cite examples where a deer turned and altered his course. Of course you can. Right. But overall, I don't think it matters as much. I wouldn't leave. The, I would say that I wouldn't leave the tree because of it. Like, don't let it ruin your day, at least. You know, maybe could it could it be a detriment? Sure. But I wouldn't let it ruin my day. I'd probably just stick it out anyways, to be honest with you. Well, cool, man. Uh, so last thing I want to dive into here is something that you showed me at the Chattanooga Mobile Hunter Expo. I think that you have a really awesome design. So I just want to take a dive into it. And there's actually, this is twofold, I guess. So before we get into that, let's go down the one sticking route real quick. And I want to get some of your pros and cons of one sticking as opposed to traditional climbing methods. You know, I mean, a lot of people know me from one sticking, right? But I mean, I hunted for, gosh, this is year 34, I believe, of mobile hunting uh, since I started, uh, or 33 going on 34. I, st- I, I began bow hunting in 1990. And I mean, I've done steel climbers, V-bar climbers, you know, summits, lone walls, screw in tree steps with Cranfords and a hang on. I mean, I've done about everything you could you could think of that I know of other, other than I've never dabbled with SRT or BRT. And to me, it's it's crazy having to find a limb to throw a tree. I mean, what if there's not a limb? What if it's limbs not where I want it to be? I mean, I, I don't know. People are going to kill us for that. Right. About I, but I literally have zero desire to do that. None. Uh, but, but I've done about everything. So I've got a pretty good background to pull from a, to, to compare and contrast it with. And, uh, I, I really only got into it because, uh, I had a buddy show my, my son who was at the time, he was, he was barely 13, he had just turned 13 and, uh, he was struggling so hard. He was, li- my son's a little guy anyway. And, uh, he's much like I was in high school. He's probably going to graduate high school being 140 pounds or so, you know? And so, you know, he couldn't carry a climber in. It was hitting him in his Achilles tendons that low. Then we switched him over to a small little platform and sticks, and, and he was struggling packing them all up. And my buddy's like, "Let me show, let him show just one stick. He doesn't have to pack anything other than wrap a rope up." And during the process of my buddy showing it to, to him, like a light bulb went off. I'm like, "That'll work." And so I got into it. We we were two sets. Of, I was planning on ordering one set of gear. I ordered a, a companion set of gear right along with him, and we've been at it ever since. I love it because I can literally, if I want to, if I want to, I can walk into the woods with about eight pounds of gear. I mean, literally, if I'm just putting a few things in my pockets and carrying nothing else but my bow and my one sticking stick, which I use a 12 inch stick from Eastern Woods Outdoors. If I want to, I can walk in with literally seven, eight pounds of gear. I've since developed this pack that we'll talk about a little bit uh, and I strap it to that and I'll carry some a little bit more because when it comes to November now, I'm like, okay, what do I do with an outer jacket or a coat or a base layer or something I don't want to wear in when I'm sweating up and I've developed a lashing system for it on the pack to do that. But, but getting back to one sticking, I, I love it because I can go in so, so, so light and I can get in any tree. You know, uh, there's several of us now that have kind of carrying the mantle, if you will, uh, on one sticking and, and we make videos a lot of times showing us climbing a straight telephone pole type tree. That's for the sake of the video because no one wants to see me take a minute or two and undo my daisy chain of my, my lineman's belt, go around the tree, move my tether up, go around, you know, that takes a lot of time. It makes for a boring video. So what people really want to see is how does one sticking work? How do you make a move? How do you go from 
six foot to 12 foot to 18 foot in just a couple moves. So that's what we show in our videos. But I rarely hunt a tree like that out in the woods. I mean, I'm hunting gnarly crap, you know, all the time. Sometimes I can just step, 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 make a move, step, step, make a move or what if I need to be that high. Because you do that, you're up 20 feet instantly. So I can get any tree with little weight. There's no limitations. I rappel down. And whether whether you're one sticking or not, I think you should take a serious look at rappelling down because it is so safe coming down. And, and whether it's icy or at the end of a long hunt. So, yeah, it's got, I mean, it's so many pros, man. I, cons, I've been doing it for several, several, several years now. And, man, I don't know. I haven't found a con yet. Other, there's a lot of people out there go, I can't do it. I'm not coordinated enough. It's not, I mean, I'm not in super good shape right now. And uh, I'm 53 years old, about to turn 54, and pretty easy. Surely someone's going to come back and say, well, this con and this con and this con. Dude, I've been doing it for years and years now, and I don't, I can't tell you cons off the top of my head. Do you attach the stick to your, like yourself in some way, shape, or form so you don't drop it? So I don't on the way up because, I mean, it's in, you've got one 12 inch stick. And it's in complete control. I literally strap it to the tree and climb up it, and then move my tether up, reach back down. So, so let's start off with this because a lot of people are like, well, it's so hard. It looks this, it looks that. I can't believe that you would do this. So if you climb with three sticks and eighters, like 99% of mobile hunters do in, in today's world, right? You're affixing your stick up around head high or something like that. You climb up a couple, an eighter or two, whatever, if you're using cable eighters, webbing eighters, whatever, you're going up a step or two, you stand up on top of the stick. Well, then you've got to take your second stick off and affix it, right? I mean, that's what 90% of people are doing, and unless you're using a climber. But if you're using sticks, that's what you're doing. So you've done nothing that I don't do in one sticking, except for when you reach out and grab your second stick to put it up above you. I don't do that. I put my tether up above my head, lean in the tree and let my legs go on either side of the tree, reach out and grab my stick. And that's where a cam cleat and one stick is important because I can just pull it out real quick with one hand, grab the stick, lean, put, put it up above and let my tether lock, wedge it in on the tree and put the rope back on and climb up again. It's literally that simple. And people try to make it so hard and so complicated. I mean, I've got some videos showing so easy. I'm like, people overcomplicate it. That's all I'm doing. I'm doing the same thing you're doing, climbing with two or three sticks. I just reach out and grab the stick and move it up above me. That's it. That's the only difference. You know how it is, man. Like, we get stuck in our ways. And when I first saw one sticking, I'm stuck in my ways. And I'm like, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the more I sit here and I talk to you and Jacob Emery and some of these other guys, I'm like, you know, it probably has its place. Like, it, I, I think it would absolutely have its place. It's just a matter of figuring out how to, how to get efficient at that process. And it's daunting, right? Because right now, I mean, I've been a climbing stick and stand guy for over a decade so like that is just like something that's ingrained in my head i just that process is easy for me at this point or it's still not easy necessarily but it's it's that process is what i do like i just i just know how to be efficient at that but the one sticking thing i mean you do definitely lose some weight right off the bat and you're going to be a lot more compact with your setup i've got one 12 inch stick i'm in 100 complete control of the whole time i don't have to worry about sticks banging into anything so that's a big thing a lot of people don't yeah oh Absolutely. And, you know, I just envision for a long time, envision myself dangling off the tree, trying to get a hold of that. But like seeing the cam cleat and how that functions and everything, I think at the very least, I need to at least I need to try it because what I what I see it being for me is if I go out and I'm going to self film some of these hunts and like, let's say I go to Indiana and I'm like, all right, this spot's two miles deep. I want to go back in here. I don't know what tree I'm going to be in. I don't know how high up I'm going to be. It makes a lot of sense to just have a really compact setup. Like it would be super compact, I'd probably dive right into that system where I need to be. And so I guess I have another question here. Is your tether your rappel rope as well? Is that the same yeah, thing? And, and the last thing you just said there kind of sparked a, a, a thing I wanted to say. And then your question was perfect for it. So my tether is my rappel rope. I carry one 40 foot length of rope in. That's it. And it weighs, I can't remember. I think it's 1.3 pounds. I weighed it. So 1.3 pounds of rope. My stick is 2.7. At least one of the last time I weighed a stick. I've got so many different sticks, but one of them is 2.7. So 1.3 rope. You're, what's that? Four pounds or so yeah. for your climbing gear. And so the good thing about that, and the reason I bring that up, say that that sparked a memory is with your style of hunting going into big woods and more ridges and thermal hubs and you know you've got draws and points and things like that the, the you know i don't claim to be an expert in that area and i've got so much to learn in in big woods but there's you know i've hunted enough that there's times when you know you need to be on the high side of the of where you want to expect the deer to come out and there's other times you need to be on the the low side because of thermals pulling time of day wind direction whatever well there's times some areas I hunt, and I'll just say it, the Shawnee National Forest, 
and, you know, there's 50,000 acres there, so I'm not giving away any spot there. But Shawnee National Forest, sometimes where I hunt there, I mean, if I'm on the downside of a trail or where I expect the deer to see, it's so steep that that tree may begin growing 15 foot below the eye level where I expect that deer to be. So if I start down there at the base of that tree, by the time if I want to get up 20 foot above that, that deer walking through, I'm at 35, 36 foot from the base of that tree, even though I'm only 20 foot above the deer, if that makes sense. So the good thing with one sticking and having a 40 foot rope, and that's why a lot of us carry 40, 40 foot, I can go up there with my stick and rope just the same as if I could go up 15 foot. It, I'm not limited at all in height or anything. It probably sounds crazy to people, but I was chasing that buck late season last year and we're, we're out of cover, right? There's It's February. There's no cover in the woods. And he's wrapping around a logging road off a point, and the closest I could get was about 80 yards from his bed off that point while I'm on the downhill side of his travel route. So we ended up using, oh, I think, six sticks, and we were 36 feet off the ground, but we were eye level with him at 15 yards. But we were six sticks high, and talk about uncomfortable setting setting those sticks that high and it was just it was uncomfortable i would have felt better with tethered in the whole time like i just would have i mean i'm going to be honest with you like i feel like one sticking is honestly probably the the safest thing you could do because even if you like if i slip setting a stick with a lineman belt on i'm still going for a ride man and it's going to cut me up and bruise me up and hopefully i don't break something or still hit the ground but when you're tethered in the whole time that's just not going to happen. You're going to be safe. And if you did drop the stick, you just rappel down. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? Talk about three things real quick. A lot, because you will get some people that are detractors of one stick and say, well, when you move, when you make your move, when you climb up, you've got tethered slack. Okay. And, and there's fall factors if you fall with tethered slack. What I've learned over the years, and I've started doing it myself and implementing it into my routine is when I, when I get to the top of my webbing aider, and I place my first boot on the bottom rung of the step, I, I pause at that point and move my tether on up. Then when I get to the top of the stick, I move it up a second time. So I move my tether up twice during a move. So I minimize tether slack as much as I can. Is there some a little bit there? Yeah, I may fall a foot on three tether slack, but that's way better than what you said, sliding down and gutting yourself with a little lineman belt, you know, on sticks. Yeah, I mean, it's not even it's not even close if you ask me. If yeah, like the lineman belt, I'm still uneasy every time I climb with a lineman belt. I just, I mean, is it is it? It's a sense of security a little bit, but I'm still uneasy, and I just feel like, man, if I was tethered in the whole time, even if I had two feet of tether slack, like I can make that up as soon as I make that step. And so I would just. Yeah. I know that I would feel better like that. So um, yeah, there's there's definitely some pros. Uh, the the con for me, the thing that I'm thinking about, and the reason I said it'd be like a like if I was self filming is a if I have a camera guy, or b if I have uh, like Hannah with me, or even Charlie with me, and they didn't have their own setup. Well, now I'm in a bad spot, right? Because I'm gonna have to teach them on the fly how to use this. I'm gonna have to hand the stick, or they're gonna have to have a separate stick, I guess. Or we'll have to have a platform, and I hang the stick, and I you know drop the stick down to them. So from that aspect of it, like with you know going with somebody else the stick thing makes sense so i think that it's definitely got its place it really does i really do think i'm gonna i'm gonna pick one up and see what i can come up with because i i just i've learned so much as a deer hunter throughout the years about being open-minded and i talk about this on every single podcast now people are probably like okay we get it like you're open-minded just let it go but it's just whether it's your setup or your tactics or anything else, like the ability to just say, Hey, like Greg's doing this, can that help me at all? And, you know, having a real conversation with myself, I'm like, you know what? There is definitely a circumstance where that could help me. Absolutely. I need to, I need to just try it and see what I think. I can't just, it's so funny because I feel like the majority of the time, the people that debunk a tactic or a piece of gear or anything else have never actually tried. It's all just build up in their head and they're like, oh, that, that won't work for me. And I'm like, well, have you tried? You haven't. You, so, you, so you don't know yet. You're just assuming it won't work for you. That reminds me, there, there's an old mantra that you see on, you know, in a meme on Facebook or Instagram sometimes that says you'll never be, you'll never receive criticism from someone doing better than you, right? Uh, it's kind of the same. You, you, you usually don't get a lot of pushback from people who maybe oh, they've only done it once or twice, you know, become an authority at it and then tell me it doesn't work. So, uh, but yeah, and then the last thing I'll say about that, if you drop your stick, you know, I, ca I actually carry a little device. It's called a booger. I've got a video on, it on my YouTube channel, but I don't even have to repel down. If I drop something, I just take it out and just pick it up and go down. But, but I have never, I mean, I, I bet I've got five, six, seven hundred. That's no exaggeration climbs when sticking, uh, you know, cause I do it so, you know, we hunt so much throughout a year. We're very blessed. 
and then I do demos and shows and people come over my house, I show them and, you know, videos and all this stuff. And so we're constantly climbing and trying out new gear and stuff. And I've never dropped my stick ever. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so let's get into the next part of this. And that's what's sitting behind you there, that, that backpack that you designed. So it's a, it's a one sticking backpack. It is, man. It is. So, uh, you know, I'll grab it. So, you know, I, so I, I'm like about every other hunter in the woods. I mean, I've tried, I bet I've got 30 backpacks laying around in my archery shop and things. I mean, you and I talked about it at the at the Chattanooga show. It's just, I mean, you just try so many backpacks. And I had never found one that I wanted to wear into the woods. I mean, to the point where literally I, I've got videos of showing all I did was for the last, I mean, several, several years until I started developing this, was I'd put stuff in my cargo pockets and go go hunt. And you got to remember, I mean, I'm a whitetail hunter and I'm not going in and spending the night in the woods. I'm not going out west and spending, you know, going from a spike camp and, and I need a big, huge pack that I need three days supply. I'm going in for three, four, five hours at a time, you know, for the most part. I, I'm not even an all day whitetail hunter. I go in for the morning. I come out at some point. I go, I might move to a different tree or whatever. So three, four hours. I don't need a bunch of crap. So this is a very minimalist backpack because I never could find one that I wanted to work. But as a one sticker, now again, this doesn't have to be a one stick. You could use it if you hunt with three sticks and a small platform. This is still a great pack. But obviously, I'm a one sticker. So what I did was I, I never found a good spot for to put my rappel rope. We talked about the 40 foot rappel rope. So this is how this pack began. Is I literally sat down with sat down in, in my living room floor over there. And I laid down, I, I put 40 foot, I rolled it up just like I would put it in my dump pouch on the side of my hip for my saddle. And I'm like, okay, how much space does this take up? And it was, you know, 10 inches by four inches by three inches thick. Well, guess how big that pocket right there is. It's, so that's my, my 40 foot repel rope is in this pocket. And then, uh, and then, so I went through a lot of testing. This has been two years of testing. I used it. I, I had samples made and I figured out that what I was, I was doing was I was strapping my stick to the pack. I would get my rappel rope out. I would make my first move and then I'd be like, crap, I forgot to put my knee pads on. And as saddle hunters, I'm, I'm a knee, I'm a knee pad guy as a saddle hunter. Some people use pads and everything. I'm a knee pad guy. I'm like, well, crap. Now I'm already in the process of making my moves. Another move or two, I'm going to be, I'll just wait and put my knee pads on up there. And then it, the light bulb clicked one time. I'm like, why don't I make a second opposing pocket and put my knee pads in it? And that way, as I'm getting the stuff out and unpacking, I'll remember to put my knee pads on now. And what I did was I turned these two pockets vertical. I, it started off with I had one horizontal, but I turned two, two pockets horizontal or vertical rather. And I left about an inch and a half between the two pockets here. And that's where my, my one stick nestles. It's, it's deep enough that it will hold three. I've actually put my four EWO one sticks, which have the highest standoff, you know, clearance in the, in the world. And so then I've got these, these, uh, traps that go right over. The stick will nestle in here. The, the straps keep it nestled in there. I mean, you can do jumping jacks with this thing. Your stick will not move, won't budge, won't rattle. And then I've got a couple of pockets on either side for, you know, water bottle, limb saw, whatever. And then I had so many packs, Jake, that people would, you know, I'd buy. I mean, I've, I've went through, you know, gosh, I can't tell you how many. And they never had lashing straps at the bottom for my jacket. And that was huge to me because that was kind of the whole reason that I started doing the pack was I'm walking in in November, December. I was carrying my one stick in one hand. I, what I do with my jacket, now what I do with my bow, those are the three things I had to hold. Well, now if this holds my stick and my jacket, I can just hold my bow. And if I walk up on a deer, I can shoot him with this on my back. So you and I got to talk about that pack. And I'm like, man, you told me, you're like, man, this will be a great scouting pack. So four, five, six cameras in it. If you had some pockets at the top for SD cards, the great thing about it, a lot of us have begun putting our cameras, you know, 10 foot high, angled down. It gets it above the line of sight of anybody walking through the woods. Big bucks, you know, big bucks will shy away from a camera. Certain big bucks, not all. Certain ones will, they'll see it and then you don't ever get your picture again. So there's a lot of advantages to angling your camera up, down from 10, 12 foot. Put one or two sticks, put your one sticking. If you're not a one sticker, put one or two carbon latitude SS six on it, whatever, and put your trail cameras in there. And then because of your suggestion, we put three SD card pockets on the inside, right front and center. And they've got the little pull tab. If you're familiar with a, a battery com compartment in a remote control or something device like that, where you've got the, the little uh, fabric nylon webbing, you know, and you put the, the batteries in there. And then when you get ready to take your batteries, you just pull that little webbing and the batteries pop out. You don't have to dig them out with your fingers. We did that with those SD card pockets. So you put the, the SD cards in there 
you grab that when you're ready to pull them out and just ease them out. That pulls the SD cards out right into your hand. Man, that's a great idea. I can imagine having like cold fingers where you can't, you know, they don't work right. And you just grab that little, t- that's a, that's a slick idea, man. That's awesome. If somebody's looking to pick up that pack, where can they find that at? So I am going to have it on my own website really soon, stagsinthewild.com. Uh, I've got a limited supply, and then we've got a bunch of them going to Easterwoods Outdoors. And we did a whole pre-order thing. We sold a ton of them through Easterwoods Outdoors. And we had our first shipment arrive today. They shipped out Tuesday morning. They arrived today. So a bunch of people will be getting their packs that are placed pre-orders. We've got another order going out uh, Friday, and then another order next week. All the pre-orders should be full. And then we'll have inventory on the shelf at Easterwoods Outdoors uh, moving forward. So yeah, pretty excited about it, man. Heck yeah, man. That is awesome. So to wrap this thing up, last thing I want to get into is just, you know, you and Gabe are going to be out chasing bucks around this season. So I'd like to get into your goals and expectations of the year. Yeah, so I've had a goal. It's so funny you talk about that one big buck. You had a goal that you didn't want to shoot anything. My my goal, so I've, I'm going to reveal something to you I haven't ever revealed to anybody else publicly, right? So I've got a goal dating back 20 years. And it stems from the days that uh, Troy Pottinger and uh, Todd Prenitz and, and some of those guys from WK, WKP and, and some of us were, were kind of a little tight-knit group. And, and somebody started saying something about, wouldn't it be cool to have 900 inches of bone on your wall from six public land DIY archery bucks? So so that that was kind of the, the standard that was thrown out there that at the time was – sort of unreasonable. I mean, I mean, it, it was a lofty goal back 20 years ago. Well, I need a 140 inch buck on my wall to hit that. I'm, I'm three inches shy. If you take my top six bucks that are public land DIY, you know, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at, uh, 897. If you, if you tally up my top three bucks, now that includes a six pointer too. I've got a 142 inch six pointer on the wall. And I want to keep him as part of that six bucks. I definitely would. So, that's a, that's an awesome goal, man. Yeah. So, so my goal this year is 140 inch buck. And I thought I had it last year on the one that, you know, walked out the 45 minutes of shooting light left on January 15th or 17th, whatever the last day of the season was. Uh, I thought I had him. I mean, he was huge wall ties and everything. He ended up being, he fooled me. He was 136, but he's only got a 13 inch inside spread. It is what it is. I'm happy with that buck. I don't take him back at all. Very pleased with him, but, uh, I thought I had it. So, so that's my personal goal is 100, 100, uh, 140 inch buck just to get me over that 900 inches is just something I've been doing. And I've never, you're the first person I've ever said, I fear you, you deserve something that no one else has ever heard. I love yet. it. So, I love, yeah, that's a, that's a, I'm going to add that goal to my list as well. That is an awesome goal. I feel like that's the ultimate achievement. I mean, that's some big, you know, it, I think, you know, you got to remember, I, I don't, we don't do food plots. We're not hunting out of box blinds. This is 100%. You and I could end up on the same property tomorrow together because it's public land, right? And so that's what it's coming off of. And it's it's non-guided. It's not buying. It's not an outfitter. It's DIY. So that's my goal. Uh, Gabe, dude, he, I don't know. It goes back to what we said with him, man. His, his standards are so high, man. He wants a 150 so bad. And, and I'm like, dude, just go kill a 130, please. But, you know, so I don't know. We'll see. You know, he shot and missed that 173. His standards are so high. I just wanted to, I just wanted to go have, mainly have fun, uh, and just shoot, shoot a lot of bugs, shoot a lot of does rather. And, and just don't be so high with your standards. That, that's my goal for him. His goal, if he was here sitting in front of you, he's, he's like, man, I want to shoot, I want to shoot a dad sized buck. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's awesome though, man. That's, uh, that's so cool. I wish you guys the best this season. I know you're going to get out there and have a blast. So I'll be uh, following along. For anybody else that wants to follow along with you, where can they find you at? You know, go to stagsinthewild.com. That, that's the link to all the podcasts we've been on. Our YouTube channel link is on there, all that. Obviously, go straight to YouTube, stagsinthewild.com. So, yep. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, hey, Greg, thank you again for coming on today's show. I've learned a ton. It's an awesome episode, so I can't can't thank you enough, man. Well, I've had a blast too. Thanks for having me on, man. Yep, of course. All right, everybody, that is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you could, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time.